The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling talks about the humanity of Jesus Christ and what it means to be human. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Would you begin by telling us how you came to be involved with Trinitarian theology? Yes, I would have to say that probably Trinitarian theology, without having that name, and especially the fact that those are two words that feel very loaded and very hard to understand, um, I would say has been part of my way of knowing and loving and thinking about God for my whole life. Um, having come up through the tradition that I did, the person of the Holy Spirit was very present and clear and active. Um, my understanding of Jesus as God who'd come among us and as Savior was something from my childhood that I'd always known and loved. And God as Father, um, being raised in a family where I was really invited into the love of God as my father through my father and my parents. And that sense of this was the way that we spoke about God as Father, Son, and Spirit was always part of how I knew God. Um, and it was, I would say, much later um, in my mid to late 20s where the real term Trinitarian uh, began to take root simply as a way of being part of our worship life in our Presbyterian church. And having come into that Reformed tradition later in my 20s and loving being in these sort of creedal traditions where you got to say the Nicene Creed and you got to say the Apostles' Creed like, like bullet points or shorthand or sort of a PowerPoint presentation of the whole gospel, you know, how to mm -hmm. do this in bullets. And and to affirm these things would just get deep in my soul. And then finally having a dear friend um, overhearing her one day in worship, just praying to God as triune, as the triune one who she exalted and loved and was loved by, the penny just dropped. I thought, oh, that's that beautiful term that isn't, isn't in the Bible, but all of its content is in the Bible. This beautiful way of just speaking about God as the one God who is God this way, as these three persons in communion. And the theology side, I think I'd always been a little bit nervous about theology as very um, ivory tower and very distant from the way that we were trying to just live day to day as sort of faithful believers in the marketplace. Yet I started to recognize that that term as a general term to saying, how do we think about God and how do we think about everything else in relation to God? To let that word just be this covering, I thought there is a lot at stake whether we get this theology thing um, accurate or not. And I don't mean right because I think that theology is deep and rich and God's way of giving himself to us is is very clear in terms of who he is as Father, Son, and Spirit. But I think the ways that he lets us reflect on him are many and good. Right and wrong always feels like there's only one way and everything else is wrong. And one of the beauties of sort of being in the Trinitarian theology conversation is to go, and it's 
and it's sort of like this, and and when we think about this, and and there's just so many sort of different angles that we as creatures just can sort of try to glimpse and just love and just worship out of, and and so I think that all of that sort of lived life in the church made those terms less frightening to me when it came time to actually doing study that I hadn't anticipated falling into, but ended up in my 30s, my mid-30s, going back to school and realizing that the deep questions I had about what does it mean to be truly human, what does it mean to be human in relation to God, were only ever going to be answered out of the only true human who's ever pulled it off, which would be Jesus. So you actually started to pursue some work in in, uh, psychology at first. I did, I did. We were noticing just a lot of amazing things happening in the life of our congregation. People were coming in through just radical encounters with the Lord, lives deeply changed, but they were coming in out of just horrendous situations. And from those situations, lots of brokenness, lots of psychological baggage, um, sometimes very deeply disordered. And as we had a counseling center as part of the church, and we're in good relationship with counselors up in the San Francisco area. There were just times when actually the counselors would say, could we gather to pray? Because what we're doing in our therapy session, sometimes I just don't know how we need to discern whether this is something of the spirit, whether this is something of the evil one, whether this is demonic, whether this is psychological. What is it that we are trying so to you do? You wanted more expertise so I wanted to what understand what are we doing? And are, whatever we're doing, are we, are we caring well yeah. and loving well? Yeah. So to go back to school um, in psychology and start a master's in psychology and have someone catch me up in the middle of that experience and say, you know, Chair, none of your questions ever sound psychological. They always sound theological. They always have a much bigger picture, a much bigger arena in which all these things come to matter. And I think that, too, became a moment where I thought, Theology is not so much a frightening word as it's a, it's a nice term for the arena in which we get to think as the people of God about the things of God. And so he encouraged me to go think about doing theology instead of psychology. So that, that changed course, and I've continued on and become what I never thought I would be, which is what people call a theologian. So you started at Regent College? I started my first master's at a college of Notre Dame in Northern California, did my master's in um, Christian studies and theology at Regent College, and then we moved to England as a family. I had two sons who were 9 and 11 at the time, Mm. so that was a big move for us, and a husband who gave up his ministry and career so that I could go back to school for five years there. And, And I started in London and ended up in St. Andrew's as my supervisor um, took a post up there. So that was a wonderful experience for us, and we've been back in the States for about seven years, and I've been trying to do this thing called theology professionally um, in the academy and in the church ever since. I have to ask, because I know a lot of people will be wondering, how did, how did the kids do? Apparently, it, was, it was a good experience for them. It was a great experience for them. It was, it was incredibly stretching. They thought that they knew what English was, but... <laughs> discovered that England, English, and ours is a very different language, but it was a gift to all of us. And one of the most beautiful parts of that experience was actually to live in a little town 
um, far away from my school. So I wasn't in a university setting. I wasn't surrounded by fellow students. I was surrounded by people who, by and large, had grown up in that little town, um, walking twice a week to church at a little church that had been there for a thousand years, Mm. being part of this Anglican communion that had this deeply Trinitarian liturgy, and taking the Eucharist and just participating in that kind of communion on a weekly basis with, with just wonderful people who gathered around and helped me type parts of my dissertation and Basically, just uh, we were adopted into this amazing little fellowship of of believers in England, and they have continued to be very, very much a part of our sort of faithful family ever since. And I think that radically shaped not just my son's lives, but my husband's and mine. You're asked to do a lot of uh, lecturing, Mm -hmm. and what, what sort of topics are people usually looking for when they ask you to come? Uh, Because of my background, um, my father was born and raised, as was my mother, um, in the Pentecostal tradition. I live in these sort of Reformed worlds that are curious about how to have conversations about what does it mean to live We should probably mention the your life father of the was, Spirit. Um, Sorry, my father's Gordon Fee. Yeah. And so I grew up as a person who deeply loved the biblical text, um, watched my father deeply love the Lord, and then love the biblical text, and not in the reverse order. And I used to go with my dad when he would teach around or go on retreats or do these kinds of things. I just couldn't get enough of the story. And it never occurred to me that I should be like him because I just thought, well, this is equipping me to actually get out into the marketplace. So I was a paralegal for 15 years and loved being just a Trinitarian believer um, in, in the work that God had called me to do at the time. But I I came from a background that made life in the Holy Spirit very normal or natural to me. Um, I think that I didn't see a lot of excess. I didn't see a lot of um, things that were confusing or frightening that I hear a lot of sort of horror stories from people's mm-hmm. experiences. And so I, I am asked to speak about that. I'm also asked to talk a lot about how and why life of the triune God matters to us. You know, what does it mean to actually be a Christian? And I say, well, there's only one kind of Christian, and that's a Trinitarian Christian. It's the only life that you're invited into is to know this God, and this is how he's made himself known to you, and this is the impact that it has. And then to really talk about Jesus' life, which is a challenge because his life is, of course, a mystery that I can't describe any better than I can describe the Trinity. (laughs) But at the same time, to take very seriously at this particular point in my life, um, the incarnation in the sense that this is God who has really taken on my humanity and restored my humanity permanently and holds in his current and ongoing humanity the life that I will have as Cherith, female human image bearer of God, and that that is a permanent reality that God has made for me. And there's no splitting of my body and my soul, and there's no um, splitting even of my following Jesus as a, a thing I do with my head or my heart. And I think part of it is being around college students who are deeply ambivalent or confused or have a million messages about their embodied life and their sexuality. And then watching in my life in the church how 
those kinds of things that get set in place either very early or in those later years when they start becoming very aware, whether they feel free to actually let the Lord be the Lord of that part of their life as well. So just trying to think, how do we understand ourselves because of who Jesus is, not just who he was, but who he is and what he's presently doing that helps inform our own understanding of getting up in the morning going, well, what are we doing today, Jesus? You know, what, what are you doing today and what by the Spirit do I get to participate in that continues to bring glory to the Father in a way that you take my human life seriously and actually mediate my human life and pray for my human life today and pray and intercede that, that I would not be led into temptation, but to really walk in the way that looks like the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and to pay attention to what that would mean and, and not just get my belief system locked in, but to, to function as somebody who actually is supposed to look like Jesus in a way that I'm going to look forever. And that just raises a whole new wonderful dynamic about how to follow the Lord. And so that has become a deeply incarnational conversation that I didn't see coming, but just sort of developed over time, over, I'd say, the last 10 years. Let's talk about the, the first book that uh, Peter Lang Publishing Group is, uh, is getting ready right mm-hmm. now. How did that uh, come about, and uh, what, what led you into that topic? I was at Regent at the time. I, I knew in my heart of hearts, although I kept taking as much Bible as I could instead of theology, because I was afraid that systematic theology would become dry and categorized and compartmentalized. And I loved theology emerging from the text. And so it took me a while to actually trust that the theology classes that I was taking would reinforce that, and they did beautifully. But it was later at my time at Regent in, in doing that that I had a professor named Stan Grenz at the time who came to me and said, Cherith, um, I know you're really interested in doing something in your final thesis on the triune life of God and how that influences our life as a community um, who participates in God. So here's this book by this Catholic feminist theologian called She Who Is who has basically reconstructed the doctrine of God, the triune doctrine of God, in female form. And she believes that she has permission to do this from her Catholic tradition um, and her understanding of analogy and that being a way of talking about God. So would you mind reading this book and doing your thesis around this? Because we're all really curious whether she has a leg to stand on in this argument. And very naively, I said yes, and suddenly found myself... You don't even have to think of a topic now. <laughs> exactly, except that I had no idea that I just jumped off the deep end of the swimming pool what? into um, sort of 19th and 20th century liberal theology, which I had never read, um, feminist theology, which I hadn't read, and Catholic theology, which I hadn't read. So it just threw me into a variety of new worlds that, that instead of... Um, trying to sort of sit back and, and observe, was really trying to get in and say, if I, if I was trying to understand this from the inside out, why do they say things this way? Why does she want to write this book? Why is this important to her? And she very straightforwardly comes forth and says, I do this because my tradition, as I have experienced it, feels like 
God is this solitary male figure, this ego who's unrelated to the world, doesn't care about the world, and in a term that she would use, classical theism, this sort of old way of talking about God out there. She'd say, I... Which is the way most people actually do think about God. And and think about God singularly. Just kind of, there's God and us as if there are two subjects in that sentence, you know. Even the popular movies about God. Exactly. Recently. Exactly. As good as they are and interesting as they are, they present this solitary picture. Solitary picture, picture, that's right. And always a male picture. And she was really of the um, conviction that the people who suffer most, including at the hands of the church because of the way theology is either spoken or enacted, are women, and usually women of color with children. And so she had spent a lot of years caring for the poor and the oppressed in Central America and South South Africa. And over time, just felt like if we could talk about God as a female, then men would not use God as their alter ego and and have God function in these ways that she perceived as distant. And if we could have God be a female, then, then it would be very hard to see God that way and then see women and hurt them or harm them in any way. And I'm not convinced that, that that's true, not because it's not a really interesting idea, but because we're so broken that it doesn't matter how we <laughs> perceive God, we're still going to um, harm each other and need to forgive one another. But I was very curious about why she thought it was important to have to literally come up with a new way of thinking about God in order to get what she thought God was really doing, which was loving people. Instead of what was it about the gospel that didn't sound like good news to her? And what was it about Jesus' really particular life that wasn't life-giving to her own life or to the lives of women and, and to the lives of anyone? And so to try to understand, I think, what drove her and her colleagues, who are all kind of dialogue partners in her book, um, to write what they did, I felt like I needed to sort of sit with some humility there and at least listen to them and say, where has the church not stepped up? Why is it that they feel like they need to do what they're doing because they see a big hole, a big empty space where the church should be actually bearing the image of God and being for the other, especially the other who cannot be for themselves in the current play in the world. And so my challenge in writing that book was to say, there's a very different thing going on when you call the church to account and say, who are we really and what are we called to in our obedience and where have we really blown it? Then we need to rethink God. And so what does Trinitarian theology, as the church has understood its life, lived in the presence of the Father because of Jesus by the Spirit? What does that have to say that really is the good news that has been given to us? And where do we go back and reclaim that and listen to it in a way that calls us to account to change some of our ways of behaving? And so I have a deep respect for them, but I also have a well, you're, seek, you're seeking, seeing the same problem. Exactly. And ways to meet the same To goals. answer it with, yeah. I think, the, the conversation that God has given us over a very long time without needing to completely change that conversation. At the same time, one of the fascinating things that's come out of writing that book is that 
this vein of modern theology that um, her, her book is part of really does, in one way, take Jesus' humanity very seriously. They're quite nervous about this sort of divine Jesus who doesn't really touch the human condition. And at the same time, what you finally end up with, I think, um, in a lot of that theology is you have a Jesus who never gets to be God made flesh. It, it's never really the word who has come present to us. It's God who sort of adopted this man to be this divinely appointed or anointed or spirit-filled man in a unique way. And that changes the story completely uh, because you don't have God being present to us, enacting, suffering with, dying, atoning. You don't have the things that actually are the reconciling acts that only God can do. I have to think, well, then what does it mean to look at Jesus' humanity that says, the one who is present to me is God as this person, one person, Jesus Christ, God and man. And so how is his life completely unlike mine in the sense that there never will be and ever would be another incarnation because there's only the Son who has become permanently part of his own creation as the creator. That is unique to Jesus and to no one else in the world. And yet his having become is to take on everything that belongs to my humanity and yet to pull it off, to be one who actually walks in obedience to the Father, who does not sin, but who takes all the brokenness that is tempted toward that and challenged by that and think that means he really does live his life every day all day long having to to obey having to say okay who who gets this moment in a sense me or the father you know is i and for him to say i really i only do what i hear the father tell me to do i only do what i see the father doing i enact by the power of the spirit what god is doing in the world and that is what a true human being is about, is to bear the image of God for the good creation and for its flourishing and for its life to be restored and for its healing and for its recreation and restoration. So to be faithfully what I am supposed to be and what I'm going to be, as well as being God present to me, is just, I don't have words to explain a mystery and a beauty like that. And at the same time, I've started to take his humanity so, so, so seriously because without his ongoing life, then it does feel like he sort of dipped into the human story for 33 years, did a saving kind of thing for three of those years by kind of talking about what, what life um, by grace is and life in the kingdom is about, and then dying on the cross to make sure that we all get that life someday. And then resurrecting and ascending and popping off the scene and dropping his body somewhere and kind of going back to being the eternal word or the sun in his preexistent whatever. And in a sense, that still leaves us alone. It though. does. Suddenly, suddenly there is not God with us. I think what I sort of grew up assuming um, is I really did, I think, Without ever knowing it, I too thought Jesus dropped his body somewhere and was sort of back to being the son and kind of glad that he was done with that. You know, I'd read John 17 and I'd hear in that, oh, I can't wait to get out of, you know, this situation. And, and I think that the outpouring of the Spirit 
was my way of thinking, okay, I, I really understand that God is still with us, and God is present to us, that the Spirit is really Emmanuel um, in this time, because I didn't understand fully that it wasn't just the Spirit, but that it's actually Jesus who continues to mediate my presence before God as the firstborn of the new human race, the firstborn from among the dead, or the firstborn of a new humanity. And in Hebrews 2, where it's that sort of sense, I always think like Jesus sort of having his arms around me, where he's like, you know, both the one who is holy and the one who makes them holy have the same father. So he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because we have the same father. And I think, that's right. He really is in that position, high priesting for me, kind of mediating my life, going, we're in this together. You know, we belong and we stand. And so not only that he... He stands in that place for me before the Father. He really gets my life. You know, Hebrews 2 is like, he's tempted in every single way, except without sin. So I think, well, then that's every way. Just weariness and wanting to pull away, you know, watching through the Gospels. Where does Jesus, where do you get this sort of sense that the Spirit is going, no, this is what we're doing. You know, like I think of Jesus getting in the boat after just being weary from teaching and healing and going away, and it says, and he looked back and saw these people on the shore and had compassion. You sort of hear the turn the boat around, you know, and he goes and he begins to teach the next day and empowered by the Spirit to do this very hard thing. And it's in that day that he feeds a multitude. And you think, well, then did he wake up that morning going, I know, I'm God, so I think I'll do a miracle and that'll convince them. Or is he, is he really living a life that is like mine, which would mean that he would have to be listening to the Father and listening to the Spirit. So at what point, I, I'm more curious as I listen to that story thinking, when did you have this sense that this is what was going to happen, that this is what the Father was inviting you into, that this is what the Spirit was empowering you to do? Was it when you prayed? Was it, I don't know. It doesn't, he doesn't tell us that. But to realize that this is not Jesus, like in his divine brain, going, oh, I think it's time for a miracle. I better, you know, do something holy or godlike. And then when he was tired in the boat, this was his humanness coming out of being. What does it mean for him to be God who has become like me? And relinquishing the privileges that come with acting divine without being human, which is what Philippians 2 says, that he relinquishes really this divine prerogatives to, to enact them in a way that is a faithful human image bearer of the divine. So I watch his life through the Gospels and think, how did you do that? And he's like, by the Spirit. And what if I invited you into Cherith? Life in the Spirit. So what about your life do you think I don't understand? And what about my life do you think you're not supposed to be doing? And realizing, oh, that's right. That's Paul's language in Ephesians 1 and 2 is, this is the one who's ascended to this place and sits in this place of power and authority under which everything has been set. But, oh, by the way, you too already in Christ have been seated in this place of power and authority because that's what human image bearers are to do, is to manifest the power and authority and the love for the other, which is God in the world. So you too should be getting on and, and being part of what Jesus is doing from that position. And that makes me wake up very differently to go, well, then what, what would you invite me into today that isn't what I would do by myself? 
You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.